This is Colonia Cast 20. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to the Turtle Room for sponsoring this episode in the show. You can find us at theturtleroom.org slash coloniacast, where you can learn more about our program and access the Colonia Cast Student Research Fund. Today we are joined by Scott Thompson again, as well as Dr. Camilla Ferrara, who works for the Wildlife Conservation Society Brazil and is also a collaborator at SEQUA. Uh, we're really excited to, and Dr. Ferraris also has done a lot of work with turtle vocalization and is well known for this. Uh, so we're really excited to talk to both of them today about all things Amazonian turtles and, and beyond. So thank you for joining us, both of you. So to get started off here, um, we ask this question each time, but like why turtles? How did you get interested in turtles specifically? And you know, what about them? You know, it makes them stand out as compared to other things, I guess. Uh, I, all my life, I always interested in water, what we can find under the water. I really like uh, water, aquatic animals. And I started to work with uh, aquatic mammals. But uh, when I went for my, to, to start my master's, my supposed supervisor, because I never finished my first master's, she said to me, oh, let's work with turtles. It's much more easier to work with turtles on captivity than manatees that, that I was supposed to work. And then I started to work with turtles almost 20 years ago. That's really cool. But so what was your first kind of project when you went into kind of turtle work? What was the first thing you tackled there? My first project with turtles, it was during my work experience when I was in the university. It was the first time when I came here because I'm come from Sao Paulo, south, more south of Brazil. And when I came here for my first time, I start to meet the turtle world and i had a chance in that time to work uh, with podocnemis spansa and unifilis i worked during the birth time with them and then i start to fall in love for turtles <laughs> yeah they're the, the podocnemis are such a fascinating group of turtles i think we'll we'll talk a lot about that that's a, that's a really interesting thing um Maybe. Yeah. Sorry. I think it was a combination between Amazon and turtles. Right. That's, that's there's there's certainly that that's a good combination for sure. <laughs> a, a beautiful region with some really fascinating just biodiversity in general. But then when it comes to colonians, sort of a, a great group there. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about Sequa at first. I think a lot of our the listeners are probably familiar, but maybe don't know exactly kind of the projects that are going on. And I even didn't realize that you had so many captive turtles and, and so many different species. But what kind of work are you doing and what is the focus of Sequa? Sequa, it was a dream that uh, started uh, almost uh, 12 years ago. We just, uh, not me, but uh, my ex-supervisor, Jikit Vogit. He approved a big grant, and then we start to, him and all the students, we start together think about uh, to build a place uh, where we can just work with turtles 
and a place where we can show for the population, general population, uh, all turtle species and how they are important for Amazon, not just for the Amazon, but for the environment, why we have to care those turtles. And also in, in here, in the Amazon state, not just in Amazon, but in Amazon in general, uh, people used to eat a lot of turtles. This is the most treat for turtles. And we understand if we have a, a place where we can show to the general public, maybe we can help to conserve turtles, give more awareness for people. Yeah, awareness, yes. <laughs> That's a good thing, especially. I. I've read a lot through the uh, the Edward and Don Moles book on river turtle conservation, and there's a good case study in there about uh, the consumption of river turtles on on the Orinoco and the Amazon River, and just the the sheer numbers of turtles that were being consumed through in, in kind of the mid I guess 19th century was just sort of like millions. I mean, about 48 million was an estimate that. That's obviously not what's going on now, but it's good to kind of spread that educational and awareness and, and to do that kind of thing. That Just for you have an idea, there's a recently paper from 2020 or 21, I don't remember exactly, that the authors, they show that just in the Amazon state, uh, people consumed 1.7 million turtles per year. Just in the Manaus city, a hundred two turtles uh, is, are killed per hour. Is killed, I think. Killed. Is killed per hour. There you go. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to analyze that to to look at the metric for per hour. That's that's that is an interesting way to think about that. <laughs> it's a lot of animals per day. It's pretty yes. horrific um, amount of animals being. Yeah, that's that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty horrific. Really. Yeah, that's, 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 that's hard to comprehend those numbers. Yeah, anything. I mean, there was never any kind of persecution of turtles in the United States that reached that level where you break it down to how many being killed per hour. I mean, even at the peak of harvest of the, I don't know, you could use alligator snapping turtles or something. It was never anything near that. It was not even close. Like that's that's just mind-boggling to me. And the. The ecologies of a lot of these tur the turtles in, in the Amazon and South America make it easier to exploit them too, I imagine, because you get the sort of mass nesting events. And the Podoc nemus are particularly interesting. Those are the ones that were sort of, I guess, the, they're pretty well-known. They're pretty charismatic and, and interesting. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the, the conservation status of uh, the giant Amazon river turtle as well as some of the other Podoc nemus, and what what sort of is the current state of that, and what kind of the past history of exploitation there? Uh, I think uh, the most uh, treated species in the Amazon uh, are Podoc nemus dispensa, the giant South American river turtle, and Podoc nemus zonifilis, yellow spotted river turtle. The other Podoc nemus are in threat, but I think. Uh, if we compare degree in a lower degree, because uh, Unifilis and Spansa, it's easy to find in everywhere in the Amazon. Sex tuberculata, Podocnem sex tuberculata, uh, or Erythrocephala. 
they are they have they are more they have a much more restricted range yeah it's much more restricted range and also unifilis and sponsa are bigger than the other two species uh, when you ask for a local people most of uh, locals prefer to eat uh, unifilis and sex tuberculata but when you ask for the sellers they prefer Sponsor because it's bigger and you have more chance to get more money. Just for you have an idea, in Manaus City, you can buy a, a adult expansa turtle for around maybe three hundred dollars, something like that. One animal. Well, yeah, expansa. How how large do you, is the maximum size for a unifilis? Normally. Okay, the maximum is 109, but normally it's around eight centimeters for the carpets. 80, yeah. 80, 80, 80, 80, 85, something like that. It's a big female. You can about uh, expansa? Expansa, yeah. Unifilis is smaller. Yeah. It's 40, 45 centimeters. Okay. And, and here there are a lot of uh, conservation programs. Uh, Brazil, the uh, Brazilian Amazon uh, is uh, really good for. How, how can I explain this? Let me think. Um, uh, we have a lot of uh, good projects. Uh, we have uh, the pro the government in Brazil support a lot the Amazon turtle conservation. This is a good point for us. Of course, we are not, never totally happy with the support. Always we want much more support from the government. But when we compare for the other countries in the Amazon, like Colombia, Bolivia, Venezuela, Brazil, it's have much more support than the other countries. We have a lot of conservation programs. Uh, and now we are working a lot with um, participative uh, uh, conservation from the communities the local communities they are we are working a lot with uh, participative participation participation conservation conservation participation sense? yeah that's, that's all right <laughs> the community conservation i think is great especially when you want when you're working in areas like south america where certain areas might not have access to to the information that's going to spread as easily so you want to get people involved with with helping to it really it comes down to the local people right as as an individual or a group of scientists you can't go and enforce a lot of the, our sort of conservation-minded ideals you really need everyone involved that seems like a good thing um it, when it comes to the, the expanse uh one of the things that's really interesting about them is that the mass nesting and the movements uh, I, I was, I'm, I'm curious what is known really about where, how much they move to get to the nesting grounds from foraging grounds and if there's a lot of data on that or kind of what we know about that. Uh, there isn't much publications about their movements from Spansa, but uh, there are some studies that are not published yet and we have some ideas that they can go very, very far they can move more than six, five kilometers, six, five hundred kilometers. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it's a lot. And a, a friend of mine that works in Pará State, 
he has some um, data that shows that uh, uh, the expansion they can go to the estuary, estuary, the estuary regions also. So you're saying they go to Are the, they, they go to, they can go as far as they can in the rift. Sorry, I didn't listen to you. Is it, they will they go all the way to the estuary at the at the end of the river essentially. And is there a difference between uh is there a difference between the movements of males and females? Like is are only the females making those massive uh moving those massive I distances? I don't know. I think the males also move with the females. Probably there is a difference, but uh, probably they move all together. I don't know. This is what I'm thinking. Uh, because when we are on the reproductive uh, areas, we cannot just see the females. We can see also the males and the young ones. And probably they migrate together all the time interesting that that's seen that yeah i guess that that would that's pretty interesting thing to see is there any way that that have you looked at sort of the genetics and, and kind of the structuring of populations maybe there'd be a way to tell if you looked at yep no we don't have the genetic um, studies it's very hard to do because you've got to um you'd have to transect over large enormous regions of the Amazon and a lot of it is um, extremely difficult to get to and so there hasn't been the money put in to be able to do that yep. yet. It's a um, something that would require enormous um, resourcing of large boats to be going up and down the Amazon collecting turtles for long periods of time. It's extremely difficult to do. Yeah, right. what we are doing now to try to understand more about their movements, not me exactly, but uh, there are some friends of mine, they are working with uh, isotopes. Isotopes, yes. isotopes. They are working a lot with isotopes. Soon, probably, we, are, we will see some results about the isotopes. Yeah, isotopes, because what they do is um, if you catch an animal in a particular spot and you do an isotope analysis, you'll be able to determine from isotopes where it was um, spent its time as a juvenile, for example. And if that's hundreds and hundreds of kilometers up the river from where you, you actually caught the animal, obviously they're migrating. So um, that's where isotopes can come in handy. Right, you typically see that in kind of like feeding ecology, but that's an interesting way to use it. I know like at the Savannah River Ecology Laboratory, they've used isotopes for or at least looking at decay rates for movement of turtles because in those little ponds on that facility you could actually track depending on how how much of the, the isotope had decayed or how kind of looking at different dynamics of that you could tell where they were moving or how much they were moving that was that's a pretty interesting thing to to analyze like that i think that it, are the so when it comes to like radio transmitters and tracking turtles it, are there logistical challenges to that in the Amazon, or is that something that's frequently done? <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> to work with radio tracks here is very frustrating because uh, the areas are so large and you can lose the animals so quickly. It's, it's important. And some, it's, I think it's much better when we work with satellites transmitters than via gas because we always lost the animals. It's, <laughs> it's 
the distance here is always a challenge for us. Right. That makes sense. And have you, so you've actually worked with some of these Podoc Nemus in the water in, in, in situ. That's pretty interesting. Have you seen some of these, these Eribadas, the mass nesting? And what was that like to witness that? That's got to be really fascinating. Yeah. Actually, I'm working Huaporé. Uh, Huaporé is in the border between uh, Brazil and Bolivia. And in this area, we have uh, the biggest nesting area for expansion in the world. I guess last year we got around uh, 80,000 females nesting in this area. Wow. 80,000, yeah. And in this area, we are working with drones to try to estimate the size, the population size. Okay, with drones. That's interesting. So is there some sort of like inbuilt algorithm on the drone that can count the turtles or do you have to actually download the footage or what? Yeah, I, we, I have some photo. It's not one photo because we have to do the transect and then we have a 1,500 photos and put together on an auto mosaic to get one photo. And we start to analyze the data. And I did this just early in the morning, at like six o'clock in the morning with the night vision. We use it, but uh, it's really hard to analyze the data because uh, we cannot uh, identify exactly how many turtles are together. You can identify the turtles with night vision, but you cannot identify how many turtles are together. But at six o'clock in the morning, is it possible? And we count one day, uh, 4,000 something turtles together. Well, is it o'clock, probably this is the third uh, team to come in on the beach to nest. Okay, so this is before they're actually nesting. You're doing this in the water or? No, we are doing this on oh. the beach. Six o'clock okay. in the morning because they started to nest around midnight, 11 o'clock the night before. And they, they stay on the beach all the night nesting. And I start to use the drone around six o'clock in the morning because I need some lights to see better the turtles. And when I start to, to use the drone, probably thousands of turtles nesting before, and thousands of turtles will start to nest. Understand mm -hmm. what I said? Mm -hmm. It's something yeah. crazy. There's, an in, there's a really cool picture of um, Camilla. She sent me, um, I think, last season. And she's sitting on the beach amongst Thousands yeah, of thousands. Turtles. It's the same as uh, sea turtle wahibada. When you awesome. think about the sea turtle wahibada, but it's uh, with the freshwater turtle wahibada. I can send you a video later if you want to see. It's something amazing. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to see that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I I feel like for turtle for for people interested in turtles, the aribada is sort of the pinnacle of of a natural event that you can see there. I can say for you, it's a dream for all biologists to be in this area. For me, right. when I arrive there, because uh, the turtle behavior there also is completely different than the other areas where I work it, because there they are not shy. 
they are not a few in, in threat. They're not afraid of humans. Yeah, they are not afraid, never. The other areas where I worked before, yes, they always afraid. But in this area, no. It's something unbelievable. I uh, I can't relate to that working with Western pond turtles out in California. I, I think that uh, I, I have to work. I, I've got to walk six hours before I can find one sometimes. So that, that's got to be really cool. Um, okay, but this is just happened with Expansa. With all other species in the Amazon, we also spend hours and hours, especially the Kilides. We spend hours to find one. It's not easy. <laughs> oh, so this just happens with Expansa. So the other Podoc Nemus don't have congregations like this, or that is? No, not like this. Uh, we can see Unifilis and Sex tuberculata, they don't have uh, massive nesting. But in the past, are some uh, reports about Sex tuberculata. They, they could see like 100, 200 Sex tuberculata together on the beach nesting but in our days i don't think that this is more possible to see but in their nesting area yes it's easy to see that yeah that's something i thought about a bit is because you've got multi, at least three or four different podoc nemus that are essentially are sympatric maybe not well syntopic maybe not a hundred percent microsympatric obviously not Kind of what are the differences ecologically between the species that co-occur in the Amazon? I, like where they're nesting or their feeding ecology, th those sorts of things. Okay. Do you want to show them one of each as you talk about each one? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, um, we could do that. I like that. i got all four species ready to show you, so um, I might as well, she might as well show them to you while she talks about it. That sounds yeah. good, yeah. We, we don't I, I see... Like the I like this, yeah. It's uh, Cephala. Yeah, we they do not see those. For the famous that we have in Brazil. And uh, this species is, uh, we most of the time just find in the black water. It's very restrictive. You can find a clear water, but most of the time in black water, just a few places in a clear water. And the nesting area, this species, is uh, very restricted uh, because they nest, I don't know to say the name in English, we say Campina and Campinarana in Portuguese. I don't, I don't have idea the name in English, the type of the habitat, but uh, in this uh, type of habitat, we have sand and also some uh, bushes. Oh, um, let's see. Um... I honestly can't remember what I'd call that in English either, but it's basically um, grassing old, um, yeah, grassing old banks and stuff like that. So sort of grassland. And this is this species is more specific than the other three species. Uh, sex tuberculata, Unifilis and Spansa. This is a sex tuberculata. It's a young one. We cannot see the. The tubercles. tubercles on the sure red loss. Okay. But uh, the sex tuberculata, unifilis, and expansa, uh, those three species uh, nest on the beach. Uh, sex tuberculata and expansa, they are more specific. They like sand beaches. 
and especially Spansa, they like uh, sand beach, higher sand beach with uh, large grants. But some areas, this is not work. This is just a theory. Some uh, beaches where I used to go to see a nesting area of Spansa, they also use very uh, sand with very small grants. So. <laughs> And uh, thank you. <laughs> and Uniflis is this is Uniflis. And I used to say that Uniflis are always happy because this species can be adapted very everywhere. It's very generalist. We can see nesting of them in, on the beach, normally on the beach, but we can see also on the clay, clay, clay soil, yeah, the clay soil uh, oh, yeah. clay soils, and also in um, Matupa. Matupa is when we have a lot of grass floating on the river, but uh, do you know how to say Matupa? is when you have like a lot of uh, plants together float on the oh river. this is yeah the big clumps of grasses and um, aquatic plants that float at the top of the water and sit in clumps on the river like small islands but they would sink and they also yeah. nest in these areas and this is expensive <laughs> our yeah. little girl the little one yeah yeah well, they, they they get if you get a big one out yeah yeah, that, yeah. that could be challenging. With the, uh, the Uniflis, were you saying that they, they will nest on those floating islands of vegetation? Is that what you were saying? Oh, is the there any substrate there? We can find some nests on this. But most of the time they use the... Uh, sorry. Uh -oh. oh, okay. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Oh, well. is, is, is this expensive yeah wow well, hold that for a second I, this this you got you're in just the right position this makes for like a this makes for an awesome photo <laughs> there we go jack's taking a photo midway through yeah that's great is that that's an albino or is it just like yeah. wow that's not wild cop yeah, so someone donated that but yeah, you know, every the nature we can find yes. albinos one, two. Yeah, so albinos occur in the wild. They're just not very common. Right. Um, yeah. In captivity because people, you know, inbreed for it, and so it's to make it basically force it to occur. But is, in nature, it still occurs rarely. Right. Right. Is that what is there? Or the, what was what, that, Jack? What, what sex is it? I was asking what sex is that specifically? Is that a male or that's a male. boy? Yeah, that's a yeah. I think that. The uh, so when it comes wow, to nice. Spansa, what is the conservation status in terms of like what? I guess maybe not conservation status. We sort of addressed that, but what are the current threats? Are there still? Is it still exploitation or or is human uh, habitation? The main threat, the main threat is the consumption of the meat, their meat and eggs. Okay, so that's yeah. We have other problems in the Amazon. Of course, uh, we have uh, habitat loss, um, 
climate change, but uh, the main problem is the consumption, uncontrolled consumption of the meat and eggs. Okay, that's, and do people still, I, I remember some of the accounts from the, the ecology of river turtles, people camping out on the beaches, and there was a whole sort of, the military controlled this, and people had to pay, and then when the, the, when the turtles started nesting, everyone ran out, and it was this mad dash. Is that still sort of what happens, or is this more controlled? I, no, this is, did you see these on the, some movies? No, okay. no. This was maybe this was an account I recall from reading the Ecology of River Turtles, but this could have been I, I forget exactly when the citation was, but this may have been hundreds of years ago, kind of uh, early on. Because uh, around the main beach nests for for Dokinemis, we always have a police with us. We need to have the police with us. Otherwise, people will come to the beach and catch all the eggs that they can. And also, if they have a luck, they will catch the turtle also. And normally, around all the main beach nestings, we have enforcement. A lot of guys with black clothes, arms, everything. That's interesting. Is it, has, anyone, has anyone done... It's interesting to think, right? That, okay, the exploitation when you're taking the adult turtles and then all the eggs, that's clearly not no, sustainable. The eggs also. The eggs also. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, everything. So you're not leaving anything also behind. Also the hatchlings. The hatchlings, we have problems with hatchlings also. Yeah, everything, right? So, so everything's getting everything's getting poached. There's no that there's no sustainability in there. Has anyone done like life table analysis to look at kind of the most vulnerable life stage? Like are are the hatchlings more important than adults or the adults more important? I, I feel like adults, you would think, right, it, it takes so long to get to a mature reproductive female, she's going to be contributing so much to the turnover of the population that that would be yeah, the most important. Males right? are the goal of the population. Because if you have problems with the hatchlings for a few years, the female population will still there and we can still uh, continue to reproduce them. But if we lost the females, like uh, 2015, I, I guess, yes, 2015, we had a problem, um, and the river is not come down in, in the normal time. And when the females start to arrive on the nesting areas, they couldn't find the beaches because the river is not come down. And then they start to move, look, looking for places to nest, and they start to come uh, uh, up a river. And then depression for the turtles because they start to arrive uh, close to small cities, and the pressure for them start to be higher, and the people start to kill a lot of turtles. In one night, people catch it, eight females. Eight, it's a lot when you think in a population around uh, 1,500 females. In one night, they catch it. Right. So the so in, in this is sort of there are certain areas where the the hunting pressure is higher than others, right? So there's certain yeah. areas. That are... And the problem is, if uh, this is happen every year, if they kill 100 females every year for this population, 
in 20 years will finish. Right. We don't have, a, a, okay, maybe in the 20 years we can have a recruitment from the first females, but uh, we'll be not enough. Right. The rate it, of loss is greater than the rate of growth. So it's not. Yeah. Normally, when we work uh, on turtle conservation in the in ex situ, we are more, for us, it's more important to care the big females, the adult females, than the hatchlings. Because if we lost the hatchlings, it's okay, one year. We have other years. And right. we all put more power for the enforcement during the nesting time than the birth time. Of course, we have enforcement run during the enforcement time, the, the birth time. But during the nesting, when we put we have power. Yeah, that that that's good. That makes sense. And then I guess we can sort of maybe transition to talking a bit about vocalization. But I yeah, so that that's that that makes sense. So, so I guess changing focus a little bit. You've done a lot of work with looking at how turtles communicate. This has been fascinating stuff. I think I first saw this on the BBC, the news, and then I, I immediately started digging into all the literature on it, and it was pretty much all just things that, that you, you've been authored on, so that, that's pretty interesting. What, what first led you to think that turtles could be communicating, and, and, and what led you kind of to look into the sound, and, and, and how are they doing this? Why is that to work? This is what he asked me why I started to work. Yeah, why you thought, why, why did you think that the turtles were communicating? What led you to that? Uh, everything happened at the same time. When I did my master with uh, sexual selection, with polokinemis erythrocephala, and always when I observed the animals, I saw some movements and always think, why they don't? use the sound to communicate always we start to think about that especially for the males and sometimes uh during the the reproduction reproductive behavior the females and male just look at their selves and change the movement the behavior and then we think wow something happened maybe they are use the sound to communicate okay and then when i almost finished my masters Someone, uh, Jacqueline Gaios from Australia, the first person that uh, described describe the sound communication in turtles, she just finished her PhD. And then we said, yes, turtles use sound to communicate, probably. And then Jake Vogel, my supervisor, he said to me, let's try to to develop a project for your PhD about that? I said, yes, why not? Let's try. And then we started. That's... And we choose Podokinemis Spansa because it's one of the most social species in the world. And we say, if you see some animals sh should speak, probably Spansa will. And then we should Spansa. Right. What what kind of things did you find? Like, how do you analyze this? You use a hydrophone, I think, and and yeah. like logistically, how do you do that? How do you go out in the field and test whether they're communicating? I mean, it seems like that's uh, kind of like yeah. My PhD, everything it was a new discover every day. It was so cool. 
this period. At uh, the beginning, I went to the breeders, turtle breeders, because they have a large tanks with a lot of turtles, and I put the hydrophones there and spend time. But then the breeders, I never listened so well. Maybe because they are on the tanks for a long time. And then I catch other turtles and put in a swimming pool in my house, and then I start to record it again. And at this time, I really find the sound. I say, okay, now I, I understand which sound, how, what's the type of sound they use. And then I went to the nature in situ during the nesting time because there are a lot of turtles together and say, let's start to record. Okay, it, this is on the first year. On the second year, we start to think, okay, but how about the hatchlings? Why not hatchlings? And then I start to record the hatchlings. On my third year, we ask it when they started to use sound. Let's try to record the eggs. The beginning when I started to record the eggs, I was felt so stupid because I just look in the eggs and I put my microphone and I, well. But in the end, yes, the turtle start to make some noise and say, yeah. They, they start to use the sound in the embryo's form. And so and then, how complex are the sounds that they're making? Are, they, are there different sounds for different behaviors? Or what is the kind of... For the name specifically, they use 11 sounds to communicate. Uh, the hatchlings, they use seven types of sounds and the adults, eight types of sounds. But there are some specific sounds for hatchlings and some specific for adults. And between the hatchlings, there are some specific sounds that they just use inside the nest and other sounds that they just use outside the nest, under the water. And the same thing for the females. Uh, they're, they have a specific sound that they just use when they are outside of the water, like basking, and other sounds just under the water. And also, the intensity of the sound between females and hatchlings is different also. Normally, the hatchling sounds is lower than, no, it's opposite, it's higher than the, the adult sounds. What frequency range are we talking about? Are these low frequencies or they're pretty low, right? Uh, the it's not, it's, we can uh, hear the frequencies between 36 hertz to 4,500. Okay. All right. That, yeah, I don't, I don't know much about the human, but humans can't really hear that without an assistant. Between 20 hertz to 20,000. That's for human, the human man. Yep. Okay. All right. So, so we, okay. So we actually could pick up on that. Okay. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah. I didn't really consider that. So that, that's an interesting thing to think. Do you think that taking turtles, I guess, what does this say about their social complexity, right? If they're, if they're using these sounds and they're, they're pretty complex animals socially, not what you'd normally think for turtles, right? That, that yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I think uh, uh, most of turtle species use sound to communicate, 
but uh, the way how to use the sound is different between uh, species. Like more social species maybe use more sound than the... I don't know if I can say less social. <laughs> I'm not too comfortable. Yeah, more solitary turtles. They use less sound to communicate. But what we are seeing that every turtle that we are trying to uh, record, we find some. I remember, yeah, there seemed to be sort of a wave of, it, it seems like there's kind of a wave of different discoveries in this. What, what species has it been documented in besides the Podoc Nemus? Okay, uh, for the Podoc Nemus, all for, from, no, not just from Brazil and Colombia, they recorded. All Podoc Nemus use sound. We submitted a paper two weeks ago and we show that all turtle families use sound to communicate. Okay, well, so this is very current. So that, was this say a about all these species, but families, yes, all families use sound. Okay, yeah, well, so yeah, sea turtles, I guess. And yeah. so do you think that moving turtles into captivity is something that messes up their is social sociality if it's just for nesting? I mean, maybe it wouldn't mess anything up if you have captive turtles, but maybe it is, right? Is it causing an issue for them in captivity, being separated from others? Maybe, yeah. I'm, I don't know. Probably early days in looking into this to say that on turtles, but in other animals, which are social. If you don't get your social um, construction correct, in um, say a zoo situation, um, you will have a lot of problems. And that's been shown in mammals, in other types of reptiles, in birds. Um, you have to have the right sex ratios, the right numbers um, for the animals to thrive. And so it's probably true of turtles as well. And with my experience, when we put uh, turtles together for a short time, you have more chance to get sounds than if you have a turtle in the captivity for a long time, you have much less chance to get the sound. Okay, so they stop. Huh, that, that's an interesting observation, right? That it, it kind of deteriorates over time. Does it deteriorate or does it just stop? I, is it something that like it slowly... It. I think probably they just stop it. They don't need to use the sounds maybe in the captivity like they use in the nature. Right. With humans, I mean, it's like if, we, if we're in isolation for too long, that can lead to mental kind of health issues. But I don't know, with, with turtles, maybe that's not something that's there. I, I think that's a very complex kind of neurobiology question is how do you correlate? Maybe there's a correlation between lifespan or hormonal levels and, and being disconnected from social, from, from, counter, from congeners. Maybe. I mean, that's... Yeah, maybe it's not really beneficial and that kind of hasn't evolved that kind of kin drive for for compassion for kinship in turtles maybe it's nothing beyond just nesting propensity if that makes sense that, yeah okay that that's pretty interesting i think that that that's that's something really sort of like as i doing a phd that thesis you said that that's got to be good a lot of people i think struggle for a question but that's certainly not something that <laughs> is, is, yeah i'm is, very yeah. happy to see that there is so many people who start to stir the turtle communication 
not just fresh water, but also sea turtles. There is very interesting tur studies with sea turtles also about sound okay. communication. Very interesting in the nature. So that's cool. good to know. That, that's good. That's good. So that, that one of the other things that you did some work with the Frynots, the Jeffrey Seidnecks in, in the Guapore River. I probably butchered the pronunciation, but that, that was pretty interesting. I've come across a paper on that for basking. I've, I've done some work with basking ecology of Western pond turtles, and I came across that paper or something like something related to that that region with the Frynops. But what kind of stuff did you learn there? What was it like to work in the field with, with those? What I want to do in the film. Would perhaps just for honest you did you do anything on Jeffronis? Um, no. No. No, I don't think um, Camilla worked on Jeffronis. She might have. Um, there is actually a Gabrielle Ferrer we, as well. Yeah, we published him. maybe something in the past, but something very. I'm not working much with this species. Most of the time, I work just with Podocnemis because uh, my main focus actually is to work with conservation for WCS. And most okay. of the time, yeah, I could be thinking of the wrong Ferrera. I'm pulling that from somewhere <laughs> deep in my mind. That's fine. Yeah, no, that okay. That's a, so that okay. Podoc Nemus is sort of the. What is it like, kind of doing in the field, right? That that that's something that from I, I, we're all from the United States, and we have got certainly an interesting ecology and, and communities here, but. I've never, as someone who's never been to the Amazon, there's got to be some really cool things that you come across. What, what was maybe your most interesting encounter with a turtle and what kind of other animals are you coming across when you're doing your work? <laughs> it's difficult to, to answer because there are so many interesting places and cool areas. Depends what you want to see and what you want to live here. Because each uh, each river each nesting area that you that you go here is completely different than the others it's uh, for me it's very interesting to go to rio negro in the black water and work with podocnemis unifilis extuberculata and erythrocephala and also the work with the communities there is so cool to work with them and understand how how they the relationship the day between the, the local people with the turtles it's i like so much and also it's very interesting to go to big rivers like abufari or guaporé and see big nesting uh, nesting big nesting areas to go yeah depends what you want everything is so interesting and cool uh, yeah and they, I think uh, for the Americans, the most different things is the size of the rivers, the yeah. island to be here. Everything is so huge to like to access to my areas. It's, everything is so far, even for me that I'm here. Just for you have an idea, for me to go to Guapora River, I spend almost two, two days to be there in the area. I need, I need to get airplane, bus, car and boat and uh, yeah it's the same if i want to go to abufari i can go by airplane in two hours and then take more two hours by boat small boat or i can go by big boat in two days the distance here is always huge 
the scale of the Amazon um, is um, just something you won't, you can't appreciate till you see it. It's um, there's no other rivers virtually in the world that have the scale of this river. And also, uh, to estimate population here is really really hard. When we work with Mark, uh, Mark and Hack Capture, it's really it's a big challenge for us always because we have so many animals in a large areas and yes. Right, you're saying you, the the Podoc Nemus will move up to 650 kilometers. It's hard to have a closed population model for that. I imagine you, it's it, very tough to 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 kind of estimate. Right, that that makes a lot of sense. Have you done? Is there anything that exists sort of on on population size estimates, or like how how do you tackle that? Is that even something that's doable? I, I try it, but I never did something really good. But a friend of mine, he worked for his PhD with Podokinemis erythrocephala, and he spent four four or five years in the field. And he could catch around, I don't know, 5,000 animals, something like that. And he could do, he, he got an idea the size of the population in the area. But Right, you've got to define the area, I guess. That... The, he captured animals here is really, really hard. In Abufari, I catch 800, around 800 turtles. And I recapture just one. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, challenging. Yeah. Challenging uh, and very expensive because we spend a lot of petrol. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah, that's interesting. The population estimates. I've I've tried to do this with some. I'm looking at doing this with the pond turtles in California and also doing it for some Florida spring systems, the, the turtles that we have. There's one site here where we've got 11 species in this one system, and it's a lot easier to do that. Still, for the cooters and the cooters in there, they, they'll move up to 100 plus kilometers in and out of this one river. But uh, that, that makes it kind of challenging if you're trying to do these estimates. But for other species, it's easier. I can't imagine trying to do a whole something like the as extensive as the Amazon trying to kind of get a grip on that. That's when people ask, oh, how many turtles exist of this species, right? It's it's really you just <laughs> kind of laugh, right? It's not really something. I'm dealing with a river system that has a quantity of water the size of large countries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's that logistically yeah, challenging. Late when we saw eight thousand females on the beach, can you imagine how many hatchlings hatchlings we got? It's around 100 per nest. And can you imagine this? We have a mass birth also. It's impossible to count everybody. And... Right. When it comes to the, the Podoc Nemus, are there any sort of like osteological differences between the, the, the species or I guess six species? That... This one's for me. This is for him. Okay. Sure. There are, and um, actually they're, they're, fairly, they're very distinctive, especially erythrocephala um, is quite distinctive. They have um, differences in um, the regions of the nasal bones and um, uh, regions of the palate, because um, this is all diet related. Of course, any, any bones related to the mouth um, is usually heading back to diet. And so there's 
slight dietary differences and things like that. They're basically all herbivores, but they eat slightly different plants, so their mouths are differently constructed. And um, their shells are obviously different. I mean, Unifilus is, um, the shell is much more domed, um, whereas um, Expanse is much more flattened and flared, and uh, the other two are much smaller animals. So, yeah, there's significant differences between them. Okay, that's good to know. So there's another project that I've heard a bit about. It's the Rhinomies. That maybe that's upcoming research, but that that's kind of an interesting turtle that we don't hear a lot about in the US. I, I don't know really about anything going on with them here, but you're doing some stuff with them there in, in Brazil. So maybe you could tell us a bit what is known about them, what what's known about their ecology and what sort of things do we are we are we still trying to learn? That's a project that um Camilla and I are doing together with um, another um, person um, as well. And um, we're looking at several things. And um, I'll talk about one facet of it and then Camilla can expand on another. Um, one thing I want to do with um, Hanemis is um, I'm not convinced it's a single species um, for myself. And um, my problem with it is that once you get about, I think it's 400 kilometers west of Manaus, um, you run out of confirmed loca locality data for that species. But then it, it picks up again just before you get to Colombia. Um, and you'll see um, plenty of confirmation data in Colombia for the species. So this is a huge section of the Rio Negro that has no confirmed sightings of the species. Um, but if you look on the map um, in anywhere that shows how they're distributed, they've got the whole Rio Negro as being the distribution and it's one big population. And that doesn't seem to be correct. And so we're looking at three localities um, to determine if there is a difference. And one is um, Trombetas, uh, what's, what's it called? Where um, Fabio is. Trombetas, Trombetas, Juki, and, and then Colombia, and comparing the three. And um, I, I think Trombetas and Juki, um, which is near Manaus, will be probably a maybe fragmented but large single population. But the one in Colombia, I think, will possibly be a completely new animal. Um, and they're not connected. I don't think they're in the Rio Negro between. Um, like mostly here in um, Colombia, um, to put it simply. And um, the species is not a river turtle, which is really important to understand with that turtle. It lives in tiny, in Australia we call them creeks, um, but they're water holes you can almost jump across. And um, little streams, they're a stream turtle. And um, so the river has nothing to do with their distribution. So if they're in, if they're along the Rio Negro, they'll be in all these little tributaries of the Rio Negro to the side of it. They won't be in the, in the river itself. It's not the type of turtle it is. And um, they differ from what I can see so far in some of the skull morphology. Um, the coloration on the head is different. I'm not a big fan of color um, as a character um, in any turtle virtually, I think. One of the problems with color is that to use color as a character, you've got to demonstrate that it has an evolutionary significance. And in turtles, it doesn't. Um, so turtles are highly variable in color within species. 
Um, whereas if you look at birds, songbirds, for example, females are picking the male that they like the most. So the males all try to be like that. And so you've got this evolutionary driver pushing the males to look out like a certain color. And that just doesn't happen. I did show this animal yesterday, but this is an Emmys. Um, oh, wow. get her in the middle without gripping on the um, laptop. <laughs> no. So, you know, they're very red, um, as you can see. Um, and when they're younger, they're extraordinarily pretty total. Um, this is a pretty much an adult. Um, she's dripping a lot. Grab her back before she drips on the computer. <laughs> um, she's peeing everywhere. Uh -oh, anyway, there you go. typical turtle. Anyway, um, so yeah, we're look. I'm looking from my perspective of it. I'm looking at a lot of their. Um, um, is it a single species? And that's uh, and that's very important to know because it, it impacts conservation. It impacts many other facets of what you do with this turtle and how you manage this turtle. And Camilla, um, you're familiar with most of the um, work that's been done on the ecology that was done by. You can explain your oh, English right. is much better than me. Apparently my English is much better. Um, okay. You can explain much better than me. There's been a few projects on Hinemis in the past, very few. But honestly, there's about eight papers and two theses, which is the sum knowledge of this species. Um, so we have a fair idea what it eats. We have some idea um, of what it, um, how it lives. We and don't know where it nests. We know when they nest, but we don't know where they nest. Their eggs have never been found. Um, they're mostly eating things like palm nuts and stuff like that in the um, in the forest. So they're sort of like a semi-forest turtle. Um, a American equivalent would be a bit like terrapin, um, where you're seeing a turtle that is an aquatic turtle, but it gets out of the water a lot and moves around and eats on um, land as well. Um, They've even been found to have lizards and things like that in their stomach contents. Um, but um, so their diet is not great. It's not well known. Very interesting one on the um, reproductive ecology of them is that here in um, around the Manaus area, and this is their type locality, um, they breed around May, June period. Whereas um, in Colombia, they're breeding in August, September. So you've got reproductive isolation. Now, that may not be genetic. It could also be to do with environmental conditions. So the turtle could be um, working with the dry season or something like that, which is different over on in Colombia to here or something like that. So it may not have a um, significance to it being a species, but it's a it's certainly a pointer that they're very different. Right, even if the the the, I guess the the patterns of the, the weather there is different, that could still mean they're on a separate trajectory, right? Because that's going to lead if you've got differ, differential reproduction that that over time might lead to different kind of selective forces working on the 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 incubating animals in a way that kind of creates two separate lineages over time, right? It's two separate lineages. As best as I can tell, they are allopatric um, by a long way. 
um, we're talking some thousand kilometers um, separation. And um, they um, have probably been that way for quite some time. Um, I think my own, just theorizing about it, I think they're a leftover from when the, um, before the Amazon even existed. Honestly, I think they're a leftover from the major drainage of the Orinoco, which was there until the Brazilian and um, Guyana Shields went up and that split the um, Orinoco into what is still the Orinoco and the Amazon. Um, but, um, and so I think they're a leftover from that. There's no way they tra they traveled up the river. This is, the river is a, is a um, vicariance event for them. It's a major vicariance event. So, I think they're remnant populations of um, a very old species and their neural bone formation and some of the features of their carapace and plastron are very primitive for chelids. They're actually quite an ancient turtle. That, yeah, that's some interesting work, something that you don't hear a lot about. That, that, that species in particular, it's not, doesn't get covered very often, kind of falls in that, you know, the mesoclemies, that sort of, I guess, grouping of turtles. It, it's not, in terms of like where it's kind of lumped when we're talking about them, not maybe relationship wise, you could expand so, upon yeah. that. Phylogenetically, they seem to be related um, most closely somewhere around the Acanthocheles um, um, mesoclemies group, but they're certainly nowhere inside them, um, either of them. Um, they're a long way out, but. Um, and that's supported by both molecular and morphological analysis. Um, so they're, they're very, very distinctive lineage. That's it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that, one, one other species I was just thinking of that as similar coloration, obviously a very different thing is the, the Hoag's side neck. The, the, I think it was Ranocephala maybe that's still considered but that i don't know what is known about those but that's kind of a different thing i was just kind of thinking about that I... we're writing a paper about panacephala right now um it was it was in mesoclemies for a long time it should never have been um it, it's not anything like um, mesoclemies it's actually more similar to phrenops than it is to uh, mesoclemies and um so they're a species that is highly endangered here, um, extremely endangered. But, um, and um, they're a monotypic genus. They're basically an extremely primitive um, lineage that led to eventually the Phrenops. So they've been around a long time by the look of it. They're only found in the um, Atlantic forest area, yeah, the Atlantic forest area, which is a highly endangered habitat here in Brazil. Um, they're, they're similar to Phrenops in a number of skull features, but they, they are different in the shell. Um, the one character that can identify any Phrenops from any other cubit is um, the number of neural bones. Um, all Phrenops have six neurals, and they have the first six neurals, one through six. No other cubit has that pattern. And so that identifies all Phrenops. Hoggy does not have that pattern, but it has one or two neurals, and um, they're usually the third and fourth neural, which may or may not be present. And um, but it has a phrenops-like skull in a number of um, ways. But it's a very, very different animal. 
not a lot known about it honestly it hasn't been studied well enough it's a very poorly studied species yeah i seem to recall the renemis in the tftsg account on them it said they might be more common than you think but that's not the case with the the hoagie that they are actually confirmed to be rare or just there's not enough to know i don't know um with hoagies yeah i don't think that they are doing uh, much hoagie studies there are few tests in brazil about the hoagie and they have a a large uh, hoagie conservation project in carambola minas gerais but also, yeah, there are few people studying them in uh, Rio de Janeiro also. There's a guy, I, I think he's doing his PhD with Hoge. But that's it. Not much people are working with Hoge. That's interesting. A lot of, lot of cool things to be, to be learned, I think. Yeah, well, there are space for people come to Brazil and start to work with turtles and study. Not many people are studying turtles, especially in the south of Brazil. Most mm. of people are in north of Brazil. In south, we just have a few studies, very, very few. Not just with hoge, but with the other species, the same history. Right. That... There's a lot of species in southern Brazil. I mean, it's not as much as the Amazon, but they, yeah, are, but they are still some significant species down there, like Hydromedusa. Um, Hillary. Um, there's um, Hillary and also um, Van der Hage. Yeah, Van der Hage. The new um, we're going to resurrect one of the Frinops in the paper we're doing. That's the uh, Hyoparana um, um, Frinops. Um, so it's there's a lot down there. Um, it's not the 16 odd species we got here, but it, it, there's still some very significant species down there and very unusual ones like Hydromedusa mm-hmm. especially. Yeah, some of the acanthocetes too. Those are there's some interesting stuff there. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff. Well, I, I guess we can, we're kind of coming to a we can wrap things up. We like to keep it to around an hour and thirty. Well, I, minutes I had one more. I kind of had a question I wanted to get in here. Go ahead. Um, in terms, kind of circling back to the Amazon about uh, the Peltocephalus. Like, where do they fit with the rest of? The- the, uh, like turtles in the trophic pyramid, not like how could we forget? Clouds, like, I mean, like in terms of their ecology, what, what are what is their diet, and uh, when do they nest, and like sort of those kind of things. Um, the their behavior it's not so much different than the other podocanemis. They used to nest when the water start to come down, but the difference for the the podocanemis that the peltocephalus they nest uh, in the they nest in a floated forest all the floated forest under yeah. the leaves and this is good because it's like they protect their nest because it's really hard to find the peltocephalus nest and this is good for the conservation because most of time people just leave their nest. They don't need the peltocephalus eggs or hatchlings. Most of time they just eat the youngs and the adults. Uh, but 
what for another side uh, you can find uh, because uh, to get product names is more easy if you get it's easier when you get them during the dry season but petrocephalo you are able to get during all the seasons even when the river uh is yeah during the flooded forest yeah, during the forest is it possible to get petrocephalus but People don't like much to eat petrocephalo like the other product names. And when you you see people selling petrocephalos, it's just uh, in the very small cities or inside the communities. In the big cities like Manaus, it's it's not common. It's very uncommon you see the petrocephalos here. And yeah, something more to say. Um, yeah, there's not a huge amount of studies on them. Um, there are a few studies, some, yeah. but not a lot. Not a lot. There are a few studies. There's a very a new study that they published a month ago from uh, Juarez Pezuch. Um, he's talking about the size estimate for uh, Peltocyclo. I don't know if you saw this paper. Mm -hmm. It's a new paper, but the data is a little bit old. <laughs> it's our old data, but it's a new paper. We have a bunch of them here, but they're a little harder to catch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the story of the kneecap getting bit off, too. Yeah, I was about to bring that up. Is that yeah. any validity to that? <laughs> a kneecap being bit off by a peltocephalus. I, I don't know of it, but I'm sure they could be, they'd be quite capable. <laughs> I got one. Oh, you got bitten by pelvicephalus? Yep. That, that must have made you cry. <laughs> I would not. I, I would not like to get bitten by one. They. It really looks like they could do some yeah. damage. It How do they compare? Like, like from an evolutionary perspective, how closely related are they to like Achilles or the Madagascan big head? Because I mean, they appear very similar, but. I think a lot of their similarities are, um, oh, um, like right off a bit, yeah. Some of the similarities are really, yeah, there's Peltocephalus. Uh, it's a little one. Um, we have some huge ones, but yeah, they're in the big pond. Um, but um, they're hard to grow. Wow. Um, same with the expansive. We have very big ones of those too, but we, we just grab little ones because they're easier to handle. Um, the um, a lot of the similarities between Peltocephalus and and um, Kelly's would seem to be um, convergence um, because they're using oh, um, yeah. have that similar way. Um, they're actually quite distantly related. They're not closely related at all. Um, because if you take in the fossil record, um, it actually Pedoctomids are actually very difficult because the Pedoctnemidae has 600 species um, when you include the fossils. And it has, um, you know, only six, seven, eight species living. <laughs> so um, when you include the fossils, it's um, quite complicated and the South American and Madagascan forms are not closely related at all. Interesting. I interesting. I'd seen her that makes more sense. The, there was a paper that, that looked at the diversification of the 
Podoc nemida or just pan pelamidusoides, I guess. And they hypothesized multiple different dispersals of ancestors from Africa to South America and then South America back to Africa. I don't know. That was based off of, I, I can't recall. I think Fritz was one of the authors on that paper. I don't know if you could expand upon that, but that may have just been ancestral, like the stem group that they were talking about I, in terms of exchange. Yeah, a, a lot of the, some of that is done with molecular work, which is very complicated because it doesn't really work very well with fossils. And, um, but um, I mean, there's a number of paleontologists who have published on um, the um, different branching of the various um, fossil pelamidusoides. The, the Pterocnemidae um, were found from a fossil point of view in Madagascar, Northern Africa, um, South America. And um, when you look at it that way, they basically spread right across. And remember that the northeastern chunk of South America is technically part of Africa from a tectonic plate point of view. So basically they, um, I don't want to use the term rafting because rafting is usually referring to animals jumping on logs and floating across the sea. But um, they continentally rafted um, between um, Africa and um, um, South America. And um, then they went extinct in Africa, except on Madagascar. And so that's how they are sort of related. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And as they were their continents were slowly drifting away there could have been actually some oceanic dispersal but then as they got farther the odds the likelihood of that happening got lower and lower well oceanic dispersal between with freshwater turtles is not that common um because they can't handle salt environments as a general rule although there are exceptions to that tranicids for example but um um most of the fully freshwater turtles do not have high salt tolerance and um, the thing that um, you need to be able to um, travel through um, a marine environment is salt tolerance because it will kill you very quickly. Um, tortoises can do it because um, they um, are evolved for desert conditions and that happens to also make you salt tolerant just um, by the way it works. It makes them have an impervious layer on the skin so they don't lose water. And so if you're not in salt water, you still don't lose water from osmosis. Um, so that's why tortoises can do it, but most other freshwater turtles can't. Yes, that's a good point. All right. Well, we yeah, so we, we can start to kind of wrap things up. I think that that's a good thing to end on there, just thinking about kind of how these these families of turtles have kind of come to be and evolve over time is interesting. Uh, we do like to do a little trivia round at the end here, just for some fun, just a few obscure, just a way to bring in really obscure facts and talk about stuff that never really gets brought up, I guess. So I don't know. <laughs> she doesn't know any trivia questions. I did send right. her a message. I, I saw the message, but uh, do you want to answer the What's the most unusual fact about turtles that you can ask someone and they probably won't know it? One question is good. We're, we're up to the test. I gave them three yesterday. You gave me? No, I gave them three yesterday. Uh, What's something they will not know? Pasta. 
so many things. It, yeah, it's hard. It's That's hard. actually the hard part. There are so many things that you pick up over, you know, a 20, 30, 40-year career about turtles that it's actually extremely difficult just to think of one thing. No, there are so many questions. How turtle can produce the sounds? We don't know. Well, we don't know. Um, we don't know. There's many one you know that they won't know. <laughs> we don't know. We need to know. All right. Um, how many groups of turtles have been found so far in um, Antarctica? In yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm <laughs> well, I guess you have to define groups first. What do you mean by groups? Families. Okay, families. Of extant turtles or also no. extinct? Well, no, no, extinct. Uh, they're all extinct, obviously. They're all extinct, obviously. Oh, geez. Yeah, this is, yeah. Okay, so from a paleontologist perspective, this is going to be interesting. Oh, uh, uh, I mean, there's two that make sense, but then I'm thinking like extinct families of turtles. I, these families, I, I think, no, no extant species still in like Australia or something? You're talking exclusively Antarctic um, families? Well, actually, just only found where the fossil has been found in Antarctica. Um, there's only been two, and um, they're actually um, Lands, maybe. families. And they're, they're both extant families. And um, one is um, leatherback. Um, they found a fossil of a leatherback um, in Antarctica. Um, that's been described. The other one is probably a keelid. Keelids, right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that makes the, sense. The, the, wow. What was the um, age of that Dermichelys fossil? Like, or Dermichelys day, I guess. Like, I think it's um, around. I, I'm doing this from memory and um if jim palm sees this he'll kill me um if i get it wrong um i think it's around 50 million years okay so not anything recent <laughs> no um i mean antarctica basically froze when um there became enough of a gap between australia and antarctica to allow the roaring 40s to develop um so a full circumnavigation of air around the planet with no land masses in the way um, so once, that's when Antarctica froze because you ended up with this effectively permanent cyclone around the whole continent and that dropped the temperatures there and that's why it's frozen. Until then, it was actually a little warmer than it is now. Um, there were, there's fossils of dinosaurs, there's fossils of plants um, um, from Antarctica. There's never been melanids found there i mean it, they would have been there right but just we haven't found them is that yeah no there's nothing there found of melanids i would i would imagine they may have been there um because there's no melanids found in africa so there's only really two ways to get um between um south america and australia so if you've got a family that occurs in south america and australia there's only really two ways of doing it they either go through africa or they go through antarctica Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think that we, this is a good place maybe to wrap up, but thanks again for, this is Scott's second in, in two days. So thanks again for, for coming on. And Dr. Ferrara, thank you for, for joining us today. I think this has been really interesting. I think I, I've learned a lot. I can't speak. I, I think Jack, Jason. Yeah, I've, I've learned a lot this yeah, episode sure. and had a good time. Appreciate you guys for coming on again. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow, Scott.
Yeah, um, tomorrow's with Lucas and he'll talk about matter matters. Yeah. Um, and thanks for the invitation, guys. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And for thank all the you. listeners, you can find us at theturtleroom.org slash ColoniaCast. It's up on the screen now. And we will see you on the next episode recording.